For Vaquita CPR, a day on the water uh, starts early in the morning, around 4 a.m. Everyone gets ready to get out on the boats for a 5.30 to 6 a.m. start. We head out to sea to collect as many vaquitas as they can, the remaining few, and bring them into protected sanctuary. This is David Bader. That's B-A-D-E-R. And where are you? So I'm here in San Felipe, Mexico, on a boat that's docked in the harbor here just to the south of the town in San Felipe. We're staying on a boat called the Pacific Monarch, which works with a group called Museo de la Ballena, which is the whale museum here in Mexico. Since mid-October, David and the Vaquita CPR team have been searching the waters of the upper Gulf of California, looking for a small porpoise called the Vaquita. So the Vaquita is a critically endangered porpoise that lives predominantly here in the upper Gulf of California near the city of, of San Felipe. The Vaquita is often called the panda of the sea. It has uh, a slate gray color to its body with black lining around its eyes and mouth. Vaquita are facing an imminent extinction if drastic and extraordinary measures aren't taken. There are very few left. The vaquita is the most critically endangered marine animal in the world, due largely to the unsustainable fishing practices of the communities living in and around San Felipe. So the fishing communities here of the upper Gulf, the way that they catch their livelihood is through gillnet fishing. And unfortunately, that's just incompatible with having vaquita here. And their population has declined dramatically to less than 30 vaquita left today. Scientists have only known of the vaquita's existence since 1958. And in 1997, the vaquita population was estimated at only 600. They are so rarely seen that many people in Mexico refuse to believe they are anything more than a myth. Is it true the vaquita used to be a myth? Vaquita certainly are never a myth. I think since they always have been somewhat scarce, they're not a very common thing to see. They don't swim in large pods like a, like a dolphin might. They don't ride the bows of boats and they don't jump out of the water. And they're very reclusive. So the opportunity to see a vaquita is, is very rare on its own. And they're a rare species. So they're very difficult to see, to find, and to really know a lot about. And why is it important to save them? So why is it important to save vaquita is an excellent question. One way to answer that question is which species deserve to live on our planet and who gets to decide. I think trying to answer that question is impossible because every species deserves to have a place in our natural history. The vaquita belong to everyone. They live in Mexico. They fall under Mexican care but they belong to everyone on the planet. And at some point, we all have to decide it's time to end extinction. Last Saturday afternoon, David and the Vaquita CPR team were successful in locating and collecting a female Vaquita in the northern Gulf of California. From the moment of capture, the vaquita was under constant care and supervision. But not long after collecting the vaquita, the medical staff monitoring the health of the porpoise noticed its health began to quickly deteriorate and soon decided it was best to release the animal back into the sea. 
But the stress of captivity was too much, and unfortunately, it was too late. The vaquita didn't survive. This is Think Sustainability. I am Miles Herbert. Today on the show, what happens if David and the team in the upper gulf don't save the vaquita? What happens if, despite their best efforts, the remaining 30 of the most critically endangered marine mammal on the planet don't make it? What happens when a species goes extinct? If these animals are extinct because of something we did, then I do think we have a moral responsibility, if not a moral imperative, to see what we can do to try to undo that. That's when we played God. You know, we didn't have any right to exterminate those species. If you really want to get biblical about this, and never trust a professor quoting the Bible, of course, but it does say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So as far as I'm concerned, we have um, an encouragement from on high to see if we can undo this death. This is Dr. Michael Archer from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of New South Wales. And of course, I have this very weird little hobby on the side of trying to figure out whether we can bring some of those extinct animals back to life. Michael is obsessed with preventing extinction, but he doesn't just want to stop endangered species from disappearing forever. He wants to bring the ones we have lost back from the dead. Extinction's a complex term, really. In many ways, I think it's a -a will-o'-wisp. It's a a phantasm, because nothing really ever goes extinct in the fourth dimension. Everything is still alive. Extinction is just a, a way of perceiving things. Sometimes things don't progress in time and space. So if we can find ways to sort of nudge those sort of uh, stalled parts of the, uh, the bio-blob, if you like, back into life and get them going again, it's really just restarting a stalled engine. It's not necessarily trying to do anything more miraculous than that. Michael's first attempt at bringing a species back from the dead was the thylacine, the famous Tasmanian tiger. There's no question about it. You could, if you can get it back, you could put it back. And if you're putting it back, you're putting the king of beasts back where it belongs. That was back in 1999, when Michael was working at the Australian Museum. I'd really like to get back to that. And while that's been kind of stalled, after I left as director of the Australian Museum, my successor shelved that project, which really disappointed a lot of us. But Michael didn't give up. For goodness sake, don't let anybody tell you what can't be done, because we can't afford that kind of an attitude anymore. So in 2005, he began working on a new project, hoping to bring another iconic Australian animal back from the dead. When I discovered that the um, Australian Museum wasn't going to continue with the Thylacine project, I figured, well, we, we can't let this go. My, my aim is not to try to engineer the return of every extinct animal in the world. Well, all I want to do is just get one across the line, back from the dead, you know, back across the river Styx and kick the boatman out of the boat. And just to demonstrate it can be done and to challenge that mantra that extinction has to be forever. Maybe it doesn't. So all I want to do is get one back. And so I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to try that again, why don't we try another iconic Australian animal, the gastric brooding frog? An amazing frog, probably the most amazing frog in the world. The gastric brooding frog went extinct just one year after it was discovered by science and is famous for breeding its young inside its own stomach. Michael named his attempts at resurrecting the amphibian the Lazarus Project. There is that famous moment in the Bible where Jesus is said to have brought a dead man back to life, and the dead man's name was Lazarus. So, you know, how do you go past that? 
So I thought, okay, I, I rang up a friend of mine, uh, Mike Tyler, who's in the University of Adelaide. Uh, Michael was actually at that point, curiously, in a hospital. But he had been the last person who had a colony of gastric brooding frogs in the University of Adelaide before they went extinct. That was about 40 years ago. And I rang him up, and uh, I managed to get through to him in the hospital. I said, Michael, by any chance, did you keep any frozen tissues of that gastric brooding frog while you had them alive in the laboratory? Um, he wasn't entirely sure, but what he tells me later was apparently he, he, was, he thought about this as he was lying in the bed and got more and more excited about it because he's a, he's a frogologist, you know, and the idea of losing that frog was as appalling to him as it was to everybody else, more so. Um, and apparently he pulled all the tubes out of him, uh, kept his hospital gown on, ran out of the hospital, called a cab, raced over to the University of Adelaide, tore through his freezer, and there in the bottom was a jar of frozen tissues of the gastric brooding frog. So he rang me back and said, guess what, old son? And uh, that was the beginning of that project. But finding the frozen frog DNA was just the first step. That's when the real work started. I put a team together. I found the best people who can do what's called somatic cell nuclear transfer. That's what we were going to have to do. Michael and his team were going to attempt to pull the DNA out of the frozen frog cells Mike Tyler, the frogologist, found at the bottom of his freezer and put them into eggs of a different species. Michael told me the new cells are like a house. They have all the biochemistry a cell provides, but they lack the blueprint for building a new animal. So I got a, a specialist in somatic cell nuclear transfer, Andrew French. He had a specialist in the use of microneedles to be able to manipulate the nuclei within single cells. That was Jitangu from Mongolia. For years, the Lazarus Project took the frozen DNA of the gastric brooding frog and inserted them into these blank cells. And, and so it went. Um, hoping to see the animal come back from the dead before their eyes. Now, we had no reason to expect that this was going to work. Really, it was outrageous for us to expect there would be anything that would happen here other than the egg would sit there and say, yeah, sure, and that was going to be the end of it. And we must have done hundreds of these things. Jitong did them. And I, I never actually saw Jitong do other than look very serious through the whole time that we did this over the first couple of trials. And then all of a sudden, Jitong broke out in a smile that threatened to drop his lower jaw off his head. And, uh, and he looked up and he said, it's happened. You know, the, the, the egg started to divide. And then it divided again. And that meant it was under instructions to start to build an animal. And the only instructions it had was the DNA from the extinct animal. But that's where things stalled. Michael was able to get gastric brooding frog cells to start dividing and growing on their own. But he was never able to get them to mature into a complete animal. It got Michael thinking, why is he doing this in the first place? Why? So many reasons why, besides, of course, the my God factor. But there's, there may be functional ecological reasons for doing this as well. Michael believes de-extinction will actually help stabilize ecosystems. More and more species around the world are going extinct. We are currently losing species at such unprecedented rates. Scientists are calling it the next mass extinction event. The last one occurred over 65 million years ago. So by bringing these species back from the dead, Michael thinks we have the potential to restore these systems back to their natural state. Restoring it to the ecosystems is only going to make them stabler, stronger, and more resilient into the future. 
and you pull out a key species like the thylacine or like, for example, the wolf in Yellowstone Park, and everything starts to collapse. It just takes a while, and then you see one disaster after another, all able to be traced back to the loss of some key species. So Michael's pet project of bringing back the famous Tasmanian tiger isn't just for fun. If he can bring back the king of beasts by reintroducing an apex predator into the Australian ecosystem, that ecosystem might start to change for the better. And that's what happened in Yellowstone when another apex predator, the wolf, was reintroduced to the American National Park. As we watched and manipulated the situation, we watched a a colossal ecosystem start to collapse through the simple fact of removing one key species. People are afraid of wolves, not surprisingly grazers surrounding Yellowstone National Park don't want wolves coming out and gobbling up their sheep. So they were wanting to be able to not only hunt the the wolves outside the park, but even say we've got to get them out of the park because that was providing wolves that would spread out into the grazing lands. So they did that, and they sort of took the lid off how many you could kill, and pretty soon the wolves were gone from Yellowstone Park. Well, what then happened was the elk numbers started to build up. The elk were being preyed on by wolves that controlled their populations. As soon as there was no predator of the elk, the elk numbers built up, and they started to overgraze situations, particularly along the river systems. They grazed all the little trees and the bushes that were stabilizing the riverbanks. Next thing... The rivers had nothing to stop them from tearing that whole system apart. So all of a sudden, you're getting massive amounts of erosion. Um, One disaster compounded leading to another. And of course, that has big ecological impacts all up and down the line into the forest, down the waterways. And people watched one disaster after another starting to occur. And they realized it was because they took the wolves out. They um, bit their tongue, chewed their nails, Um, and accepted what they had to do, and they brought the wolves back. Yellowstone is now stabilized again, and it's working again. And we we have to recognize that nature spends millions of years developing complex ecosystems that are in balance with with each other. They have many legs under these ecosystems that keep them stable. You kick out too many legs under a chair, and over it goes. And that's what happens when you take out the key post, like like a wolf or like the thylacine in Tasmania. But even though Yellowstone is a real-world example of a species having a positive effect on the ecosystem after being reintroduced to an environment, not everyone is convinced this means the de-extinction of apex predators like the Tasmanian tiger, or any species for that matter, is the right answer to conservation. Extinction is forever. It's like death. Individuals don't come back from the dead, except in movies. And similarly, the extinct don't come back from the dead except in movies. This is Peter Banks, professor of conservation biology at the University of Sydney. The Tasmanian tiger is an icon of our excesses. You know, it got in our way of our our ambitions to farm. It was eating our sheep and we hunted it to extinction, essentially. Trying to prevent extinction is why Peter does what he does. It's why conservation biologists get up and go to work in the morning. We know in conservation that extinction is is the raison d'etre for the whole discipline. But that doesn't mean Peter is on board with resurrecting the Tasmanian tiger. Peter actually thinks de-extinction will cause more harm to the environment than good. I think it'll deflate conservation quite considerably because people will be thinking, I don't need to do quite so much because things can be conserved elsewhere. They can think, I'll put money into bringing this species back from extinction if I can have whatever I want at this point in time. 
Peter and Michael do agree on one thing. The reasons these species are going extinct is because of us. But Peter thinks the ability to bring them back whenever we want will prevent us from actually addressing the issues that caused these extinctions in the first place. If we don't need to protect habitats because the species that are there can be brought back, they're not going to go extinct because they can't go extinct because we can bring anything back. Why, why prevent habitat loss? It's definitely a case of you can have your cake and you can eat it too, you know, because you can, you can simply just buy your way out of conservation. I mean, it is, has happened. So, If we have the ability to correct our wrongs with technical solutions like cloning, all the ongoing efforts to save critically endangered species across the world might just stop. I really do struggle to think what is conservation without extinction at the forefront. Everything, everything is about preventing extinction. You know, there's guys in Africa right now who are trying to prevent poaching. They're putting their lives on the line, risking being shot by poachers to prevent the extinction of rhinos, etc. 150 people have been killed this year, environmental activists, trying to protect environments, trying to prevent extinction. People are risking their lives for this cause. What happens if extinction doesn't matter anymore? So all the work David from Vaquita CPR, who right now is doing everything he can to help save the remaining 30 Vaquita? For Vaquita CPR, a day on the water uh, starts early in the morning, around 4 a.m. All the outpouring of support from the Mexican government and all the donations from the public, hoping to save the last few endangered porpoises? The Mexican government is leading the charge with Vaquita CPR, along with an international group of experts. All that will disappear, and the loss of species will get worse. The term extinction will be extinct. But for some, conservation isn't that black or white, because our idea of nature isn't always that black or white. Right, so we have a baseline, generally, of what nature should be. And so we usually work towards a baseline that is what the white person found when they step off the boat as what nature should be. This is Eric Lundgren, a PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney. And that's okay, but nature was different before anyone arrived on those shores, and nature was managed by the people that were here before. The idea of nature is almost useless in many ways, especially when it leads to decisions and policies that, are, that treat organisms like machines and further objectify nature. When it comes to the reintroduction of megafauna through de-extinction or reintroduction, Eric agrees that sometimes that ecosystem will return to the way it looked before human intervention. And so when we have introduced megafauna on the landscape again, in many ways this place looks a lot more like it did before any humans. And not to say that that was necessarily better, but this is something to try to understand. Eric has been studying the habits of megafauna in North America, and he has found that sometimes... We don't even need to go through the trouble of bringing a species back from the dead. Sometimes the megafauna that are still around can be introduced into a system that has lost its megafauna, and the introduced species can have a positive impact. In North America, I've been studying wild donkeys. We call them burros in Spanish, and these animals are considered pests. But one of the amazing things is that in all these different sites, they're digging wells to the groundwater. And they're doing this in intermittent streams where surface water is only there part of the year. And they'll, they'll keep maintain water access through the summers. And pretty much every organism there is using them. So this, organ, this, this animal, the wild donkey, which was accidentally introduced, 
considered a pest, is actually increasing water availability in the desert, which is huge. Birds are using them all day long, rodents, we have deer, native, I mean, javelina, which is a tiny, tiny, small pig, mountain lions, bobcats, foxes. But some conservation biologists think even though an introduced species like the donkey in North America has a positive impact on the ecosystem, they still shouldn't be allowed to exist within that habitat because we should still be fighting to preserve our original idea of that ecosystem. But Eric thinks this is a really narrow view of conservation. So rather than focusing on what it used to look like, we should focus on what is the overall good. Or how are things working? Or how that's affecting carbon cycling and nutrient cycling across the landscape? How they're dispersing seeds? There are questions we can ask that have to do with these organisms as living beings, as, as in this case, megafauna, that aren't automatically going to find that they're, that they're having a negative effect. But whether we are rewilding environments with introduced species like the wolf in Yellowstone or the donkey in North America, or if we are bringing back extinct megafauna into ecosystems they once dominated, Eric thinks we need to stop viewing ecosystems and nature as something we control and start looking at them as entire organisms that should be evolving on their own terms. There are some old ideas that there are old theories in ecology that, you know, these things go back a ways in our culture. And they still are in our common speak about, about the natural world. But we, we've known for a while, even though it doesn't seem to sink in in every aspect of our science, that actually ecological communities are individual organisms of different species that are responding in their own way, making their own decisions to the environment and to food and to fear. And so dispensing with that old idea of this Eden where everything is fit together like a puzzle piece, because we don't really have evidence of that. This like ghost lives on in the system of our thoughts. And so trying to get out of that mindset of thinking about things in that rigid way can let us see a lot more wonder. Thanks for listening to Think Sustainability. This program was produced on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR Radio, and heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I've been Miles Herbert. I'll catch you guys again next week. Well, I have to ask you about Jurassic Park, right? It didn't work out in Jurassic Park. Like, you know, when you, is that not a... Well, I'd like to tell you, I think it did work out, actually. <laughs> um, Michael Crichton, who wrote that book, and, you know, you read the foreword to the book, um, and he did say, he was a, he was a, he was a medical professor, uh, professional, and he said he wrote the book to scare people to death about never trying to think about doing this. And, you know, what a failure. That, that movie has probably stimulated more people to think about it than ever would have otherwise happened. And there are people now working on it. There are people working with the bird genome, understanding, of course, that dinosaurs were never extinct in the first place. Birds are dinosaurs. So I wouldn't write off the possibility that terrified Crichton that maybe we can use some of that DNA to whip up a little pet you know, a velociraptor that you can have around instead of a, a wolfhound for a pet.